Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Heights Church. We meet weekly at 9 and 11 a.m. For more information, visit SalemHeightsChurch.org. Well, you're so glad to be here this morning. <laughs> That's so good. Yes, I know. Some of you are going to start clapping in just a moment here. It'll be like uh, the wave. Thanks for starting it, whoever that one, one person was. It's all right to be a little fuzzy this time of year, but hopefully you're also thankful. Amen? We've been in a series um, for the last few weeks. We're calling The Vital Signs of Christmas. And for the bulk of it, we've been just taking a look at uh, Luke chapter 2, verse 14, and just reflecting on a statement that the angels shouted out when they had announced the birth of the Savior. So one angel giving the information, there's born for you today in the city of David, a, a Savior, and then all of a sudden the shouting goes on, and we've been looking at the phrase that the angels could not hold back. For the last three weeks, and today we land on the final part of that phrase where it says, peace on earth to people he favors. What is a joyous proclamation for some because of the way that we read that in English, the way that that phrase sounds to our ears, it goes from a joyous proclamation to a little bit of a conundrum. And I want us to consider this morning who it is that God favors. Um, I don't know if you know this, but we do jump through some amazing hoops to make sure that people act in a favorable way at Christmas. Uh, maybe you've heard the song, um, you better watch out, you better not pout. We didn't sing it this morning for good reason, right? You better not cry, I'm telling you why, Santa Claus is coming to town. But I have to ask the question, well, is he? <laughs> Just assume for a moment, I, I've shared these statistics before, many of you have probably heard them, you might have even heard them recently, but uh, bear with me. If there was uh, one good child in every Christian home at the last time that they took a census of this, and let's just round the numbers here and say that there's a hundred million homes with one good child in them that Santa has to visit. That would give him, in a total of 31 hours, if we took 24 hours traveling east to west, and we gave him a little extra time on Christmas Eve in order to get his work done, one one-thousandth of a second per home to drop off his packages, drink milk, eat cookies, and take off. That's 1,000 homes per second, folks. This means Santa's sleigh is moving at 650 miles per second, which is 3,000 times the speed of sound. Just for purposes of comparison, the fastest man-made vehicle on Earth, the Ulysses space probe, moves at a pokey 27.4 miles per second. A conventional reindeer can run at top 15 miles per hour, so whatever reindeer he's using, truly supernatural. Out of the 100 million homes with good children, if they, if they were just to put out one single chocolate chip and an eight-ounce glass of milk, Santa is consuming... <laughs> 20,655,000,000 calories. <laughs> By the end of the night, he will have gained, if we transfer everything into pounds and then equal it out into tons, Santa would have gained 2,950 tons, <laughs> which makes the payload on that sleigh fairly interesting. 
carrying 3,021 uh, 3, tons, not counting Santa, who is huge, <laughs> and knowing that the average reindeer, pulling 10 times the normal amount that a reindeer can pull, he would need more than nine reindeer, folks. Uh, nine reindeer, he just only remembers nine of their names. It's kind of like you with all of the friends and family when they come in. But there's 214,200 pairs of reindeer that he would need in order to pull that sleigh. 353,000 tons traveling at 650 miles per second creates enormous resistance. That means it would be a lot like a spacecraft re-entering the Earth's atmosphere from the moment that they took off from your rooftop. The lead pair of reindeer would absorb 14.3 quintillion joules of energy per second each. That means the moment that he lifted off, off of your roof, this would expose the reindeer instantaneously to amazing pressures. The first pair, the lead pair, would burst into flames instantaneously. I'm sorry if there are kids in the room. It's a Christmas miracle we're describing here of you getting a gift. There would be these uh, deafening sonic booms that would happen in the wake, the next reindeer, then the next reindeer, then the next reindeer, vaporizing in 4.26 thousandths of a second. Santa, in the meanwhile, is in the back of his sleigh, 2,000 tons heavier without anybody to fly it. He'd be pinned to the back of the sleigh with 4 million pounds of force. In conclusion... If Santa drops you off a gift this year, it is a Christmas miracle. <laughs> we tell kids to be worried about the favor of Santa with our little songs. But the fact is, it's this, this time of year that we actually do worry about favor. We talk about Christmas. We talk about Jesus. We talk about what it means to celebrate this season. But this last little phrase, as people have read it throughout the years, ever since we received... The King James Version. It's been translated four or five different ways in the Bible, not because the Greek is complicated, but because our understanding in English is complicated. And we jam a bunch of theology in there that can undo the glory of Christmas. So I just want us to walk through the little debate that is here and actually investigate how it is that you can arrive this Christmas knowing that you are favored by God. We find the phrase right here in this storyline, and let's read it one more time, uh, starting in Luke chapter 2, verse 8. We're going to read 8 through 15, but we're going to add a little segment here, um, verses 25 through 38, where we meet two people who did also find favor. Let's stand and read this section together. It says, in the same region... Shepherds are staying out in the fields, and that's the same region where Christ had just been born. Shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock. And the angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel of the Lord said to them, Do not be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, a Savior was born for you who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. Suddenly, there was a multitude of the heavenly hosts with the angel praising God and saying, 
Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. When the angels had left them and returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go straight to Bethlehem then and see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Verse 25, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to Israel's consolation, and the Holy Spirit was on him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, he entered into the temple where the parents brought in the child Jesus to perform for him what was customary under the law. Simeon took him up in his arms, praised God and said, Now, Master, you can dismiss your servant in peace as you promised. For my eyes have seen your salvation. You prepared it in the presence of all the people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. His father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and told his mother Mary, indeed, this child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed. And a sword will pierce your own soul that the thoughts of many hearts might be revealed. There was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel in the tribe of Asher. She was well along in years, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and was a widow for 84 years. And she did not leave the temple, serving God night and day with fasting and prayers. At that very moment, she came up and began to thank God and to speak about him to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Do you believe that actually happened? It did. You may be seated. I want you to put a pin in those last two people that we just had a chance to visit with, but I want us to look once again at 2.14. We looked at the statement, glory to God in the highest heaven, during that second week in our series. The third week, we looked at peace on earth, and we discovered that glory, uh, God did something at Christmas that added to the sense of glory, the weightiness, the brightness, the majesty of who he is. Something significant happened that caused the angels to say, this is glory in the highest. And they were praising him in heaven for what he was doing on earth. Peace on earth is not peace that was coming on the outside or on the inside. It was peace in the form of a person, Jesus Peace was literally residing with them. The only one through whom peace can come was there. Glory to God, peace on earth, and now we consider that phrase, just devotionally once again, to people he favors. So I want to introduce you to the important debate. This verse has been understood many ways. In the original uh, King James there, it says, uh, peace on earth, goodwill toward man. You might have heard it that way, and I've heard throughout the years many people preach on that verse, that as a result of Christ's coming, man gets filled up and begins to do goodwill, or God begins to inspire goodwill. In fact, many have spoken about the season of Christmas being one of the most uh, enjoyable, one of the happiest seasons of the year, and I don't know if that's your experience as well. It's true that statistically, when we take a look at what happens in our nation, that there's actually more goodwill toward man that happens at this time of year than any other. This last year, Americans gave $471 billion, 5% increase from the year before. Corporate giving in the United States over the last five or six years has actually gone down 
6% every single year. Corporations are getting grinchier as Americans are getting more involved. In 2020, the largest source of charitable giving came from individuals, both individual families and people. $324 billion, or 69% of total giving throughout the United States, came from individuals who were concerned about their neighbor. Isn't that awesome? Charitable giving accounts for 2.3% of gross domestic product in the United States. According to the most recent data, there are more than 1.54 million charitable organizations in the United States. We may take a look around and think that nobody cares, but there are literally millions of opportunities for us to be able to consider and invest. Now, not all of those are great. Do your homework, but it is nonetheless an ethic that is highlighted this time of year. An estimated 25.1% of U.S. adults volunteered in 2017. That's the last time they did this census, estimating 8.8 billion hours that were served in our communities. Definitely is a season where goodwill comes towards men. But that's not the, actually the intention of this phrase. The way that it is written, the focus is not on what man does, but the emphasis in this passage is actually something that God does as a result of something that has happened. The emphasis, the way that it is written in the original language doesn't give you permission to say that man just becomes an amazing person as a result of this. No, it's all of the reflection is glory focused on God, glory and peace coming from him. Something he does is heightened here. So even though we become better people as a result, the emphasis of the angel's excitement had nothing to do with you and I and everything to do with the Lord. There are some who have translated this verse, peace to those whom God chooses. And uh, a few of you may still be struggling with that mystery that's in Scripture uh, between the sovereignty of God and the freedom of man. You're not aware yet of how that is possible that they can be friends. Um, for our young and reformed guys, every single passage that just leans a little bit toward the sovereignty of God, we just say, well, God's doing it all, man's doing nothing, and that settles it. Uh, I would have you consider verse 10 here. It says, the angels are saying to them, do not be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. When Simeon is rejoicing, he says, this one is one that is going to be for the Gentiles and for the Jews, all of these people. We can't undo that phrase in the very next statement that comes from the angels. They don't say one thing and then say another. And for those of you that that's just hard to wrap your mind around, I'm just going to ask you to add another string to your banjo and play that for a year, and then we'll talk, okay? So what could it possibly mean? If it's not just focusing on the sovereignty of God, if it's not focusing on you and I being active, what is it focused on? I believe that the emphasis in this and peace on earth to people he favors is literally peace to those who have hungered for and who desire to receive him. In Scripture, words come with meaning. We read them sitting in our chairs right now, and sometimes you may be frustrated at the effort that a pastor would take to say, do you understand what this meant in the original language or in the original context? Uh, but words change their meaning over time. Are you aware of that? Uh, the word silly, for instance, 
uh, in the 1100s literally meant blessed with worthiness. It was used of nuns who were pious to be blessed with worthiness. Uh, 1200s, it still meant some form of pious, but by the 1500s, it meant feeble-minded and weird. Not the same meaning. So if you were to say, wow, she's really silly, in one generation, that would be a blessing, and another one, it'd get you a slap. The word leech originally was a term that was assigned to doctors. But when doctors began using these little creatures in order to help bleed an individual, the word leech became affixed to the little creature. So now we have leeches that doctors put on people. Well, not good ones. I don't know, maybe there's a return to leeching. I'm sorry if I've offended anybody here. You can put an essential oil on a leech and it's probably super great. Flux, it's actual uh, meaning when you see a flux capacitor, it's something uh, that we know in our, uh, you know, if we're going to have our DeLorean outfitted appropriately, you've got to have a flux capacitor uh, because it means a continual state of change. It's the thing that allows stuff to change, but the original meaning of flux was to have continual dysentery. So yes, you would have to continually change, but it's not the same meaning. <laughs> The word cheater originally was the king's man that would guard his lands. But when the cheaters began to cheat the locals, it gained a different meaning. Originally, it was a blessed word. So what does the word favored here mean? Well, we have to look back to what these people that received it, what did it mean in the language that they were speaking? And the Septuagint gives us a little picture those folks translating the Hebrew into the current vernacular at that time used that word that's translated here, favored, multiple times in the Old Testament. Let me just give you a couple so that you can wrap your mind around it. In Psalm 19, it's interesting, in Psalm 19, it's a famous one. You would understand it as soon as I read the first verse. The heavens declare the glory of God and the expanse proclaims the work of his hands. Uh, we know that all of the heavens declare the glory of God, that when we look up into the stars, it's evident that somebody made them. And it says here that day after day they pour out speech, and yet it's without words. But isn't it intriguing that one of the places where we find this word favor, there also are angelic beings shouting out the glory of God. Verse 9, the fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are reliable, altogether righteous. In this psalm, he transfers from looking at the heavens to looking at the power of the word of God. And when you read the word of God, you begin to hunger for the presence of God. They are more desirable than gold, than an abundance of pure gold, sweeter than honey dripping from the honeycomb. In addition, your servant is warned by them, and in keeping them, there is abundant reward. When I follow the Lord, when I hunger for him, when I find his word sweeter than honey, it actually changes my experience in life. Have you felt that? In following the Lord, there is this joy in ordering your life according to what he says is valuable. It changes your marriage. It changes your business. It changes your relationships. It changes your home. Then he says, who perceives his unintentional sins? Cleanse me from my hidden faults. Verses 13, uh, 12 and 13 here, he just walks through confession and cleansing and commitment and confidence, all these things that come out of seeing God's glory in the heavens, knowing that you hunger for him, seeing the fruit of that in your life. But here's what it says, verse 14, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart 
be acceptable to you, literally be favorable to you, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. It's the same exact word there. Psalm chapter 5 says this in verse 1, Listen to my words, Lord. Consider my sign. Pay attention to the sound of my ear, my king and my God, for I pray to you. Verse 11 says, But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them shout for joy forever. May you shelter them. May those who love your name boast about you. For you, Lord, bless the righteous one. You surround him with favor, like a shield. Who is he speaking of? Those who sigh after the Lord, who are continually in the temple seeking after him, who are hungry to see him present, who want to live their life for him. Just a side note, uh, one that uh, I threw in last minute because it's always impacted me. Isaiah 66 One and two, this is what the Lord says. Heaven's my throne, earth is my footstool. Where could you possibly build a house for me? Where would my resting place be? My hand made all of these things, and so they came into being. This is the Lord's declaration. I will look favorably on this kind of person, one who is humble, submissive in spirit, and who trembles at my word. What are the angels proclaiming? And peace on earth to people he favors. The angels are announcing that God had favored hungry hearts with the Savior that they had for so long desired. Hungry hearts are satisfied in Jesus. Amen? He's the one. He came to satisfy those hungry hearts. When reading the word and seeing what God is about, the things that he is going to fulfill, the promises that he has made that he has not let go of, those who read the word and understand it, who are chasing after the Lord, continually see God's favor. He is, the angels are shouting out that the favor of God has landed on those, that those that were hungry to see the Messiah would get to see him. This was a joy. That's a bit of the debate, but I just want you to consider the testimony now of the devout. Let's test that theory that he is saying, that these hungry hearts that were eager to see the Messiah, the angels are rejoicing because they would actually be fulfilled. They were hungry to chase after the Lord. They were hungry for satisfaction, and God actually favored that generation, those people, with the actual presence of the Messiah. First, meet Simeon. We read about him, verse 25, a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, continually in the temple, continually seeking after the Lord. He was hurting because of what was going on in his community. We always think that our generation is the first one to experience hardship. Do you know that? Do you know in Simeon's day, just three years before the birth of the Messiah, he actually had experienced a time where governmental leaders were in great upheaval. They didn't know how to lead, and they had overreached. Anybody experience that? He experienced a time where religious leaders were more focused on their rights than in righteousness. In trying to have a right to the Temple Mount and a right to power, there had become a huge struggle with a sect that was coming out of Samaria. When Jesus is meeting the woman at the well there in Samaria... It is a shocker because just years before that, a group of Samaritans in a revolt 
had actually dragged things that would cause defilement into the temple area in order to defile it and shut down all of their worship, saying, no, where we worship needs to be as acceptable as yours. Just within three years, Simeon is there and there's upheaval in that place and there's a cleansing that has to happen and there are riots among the religious leaders trying to prove that they are the ones that should lead Israel. And it wasn't just among the religious leaders, but also there were false teachers proclaiming that they were the Messiah, promising salvation. Twelve different false messiahs at the time of Simeon that had proclaimed, who had gained following, following the teachings of Daniel, which we're going to talk about in the the next uh, couple of months, looking at the promises, the timeline there, they rose up and said, I'm the one that is promised and that is coming. And false messiahs have been leading people out against Rome and were killed. There were slaughters and upheaval and all kinds of crazy things happening in Simeon's day. But very few were just humbly looking at God's word saying, Lord, I can't figure it out. You do it except Simeon. Here he is in the temple saying, Lord, these folks all around me, they don't have any clue. But I also have no idea. I don't know what to do, so Lord, I look to you. Simeon was searching. And it says, guided by the Spirit, he entered the temple. When the parents brought the child Jesus to perform for him what was customary, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, now, Master, you can dismiss your servant in peace. He picks up Jesus and says, this is the one that I've been hungry for. This is the promised one that's going to settle it all. And he knew in his heart that he wasn't going to live to see the day that it was all accomplished, but he'd already lived by faith, so why stop now? He picked him up and he proclaimed that promise. We ought to meet Simeon, but we also got to meet Anna. It says there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher, well along in years, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. Here she is, a widow of 84 years. She's in the temple continually serving God, saying, Lord, you be my guide. You be the one that carries for me all of the promise and hope. And Anna also sees Jesus worshiping, praying for people, ministering to those that were coming in. Anna is allowed to pick up the Savior in her arms as well. God's favor had shown on these two hungry hearts. Well, it's not just Anna and Simeon. I believe that throughout the years that hungry hearts still are enabled to receive him. That right now today, if you are hungry for a closeness and nearness to the Lord, if you want to know the Savior, you can know him. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, a poet, had had an extremely, uh, an unseasonably hard time. 1861, uh, his sweet wife, who was just trying to keep some memories in a book, I don't know if any of you have ever done that, trying to write some things down to have some memories of her children, was trying to uh, take a locket of hair that had come from her daughter when she was young, and with some hot wax, she wanted to put that into a book of memories, first haircut or whatever. It was a thing that we used to do, right? That hot wax somehow had gotten onto her dress, lit the dress on fire, and Wadsworth 
running to her, Longfellow ends up trying to put out the fires, first with his hands, then with a rug, was unsuccessful. She passed away, and he had burns that were over his face. This fierce beard that you see on the man, he grew out to hide those scars. He was devastated by the loss, and then his son in the middle of the Civil War, a war that Longfellow said, I just don't agree with any of this. It's going to cause all of this pain in our nation. He felt like the nation was being torn apart. We're not the first generation that have felt that way. He says, how inexpressibly sad are the holidays. His son had just written him a letter and said, I'm going to join the Union He'd been in the um, battle of Mine Run, had been shot, and he receives word that he's been shot. He says, I can make no record of these days. I better leave them wrapped in silence. Perhaps someday God will give me peace. Well, one day, a Christmas morning, he hears the bell still pounding away that it's Christmas, and he writes this song, I heard the bells on Christmas Day. Their old familiar carols play in music sweet with tones repeat. There's peace on earth, goodwill toward men. I thought how, as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. He says, forever, it's always been good. Have you ever thought about this, that every other generation before ours only had it easy? He said, and in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong, and it mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor does he sleep. For Christ is here, his spirit near. He brings peace on earth, goodwill to men. When men repent and turn from sin, the Prince of Peace then enters in, and grace imparts within their hearts his peace on earth, goodwill to men. O souls amid earth's busy strife, and he's speaking to himself as the bells are still rolling. The word of God is light and life. O hear his voice, make him your choice. Hail, peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then happy singing on your way, the world will change from night to day. Your heart will feel the message real of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Longfellow said it was the message of Christmas morning, those bells that just never relented. He was hungry to have the things set right. He had gone through so much devastation, and meeting him right there in the middle of the mess was the promise that Christ is the only one who can put those things right. Do you believe that? You might be sitting here thinking, I've been running my life the way that I think that I'm supposed to, and here's what God is saying. You turn it over to me. Peace on earth, goodwill towards men. Peace on earth in the form of a baby. Peace on earth coming only through Christ is available to you if you'd put your hunger toward him and not other idols. Put your hunger on him. To understand the glory, we must comprehend the cradle, the cross, and the crown combined. Andreas Kostenberger had a book that way. I just loved the title, so I stole it. The Cradle, the Cross, and the Crown. Jesus is available to you and I, and he does change the meaning of the season. We have the debate, a picture from the devout, but now a critical decision. The question for the morning is this, what will you do with Jesus? 
The angels made an announcement, but the shepherds still had to make a choice. They said, let us go then and see. Straight to Bethlehem and see that which the Lord has made known to us. And you know what it says? They found him. The question isn't whether or not you can find Jesus. He's not hiding from you. The question is, will you actually receive and respond to the King of Kings? I'm going to pray, and we're going to just reflect very quickly. I want you in your own hearts to watch a video and then join AJ in singing as we wrap up. But I want you to consider this. It may be that today you are here, and you came curious. You came because it's Christmas, and some family or friends invited you. You came just because this is what you do each season, but you're not sure that you have a relationship with Christ. This is my invitation to you. The promise is... Glory to God in the highest, peace on earth to men whom he favors. Those who have hungry hearts, you can be satisfied today. You can know Jesus Christ today. If you do not have a confidence, you have a walk with Christ. If you've not put your faith in him and you desire to settle that today, I would encourage you at the end of the service to come up. We would love to. Our staff guys will be up here. We'll pray with you and make sure that you know for sh- today that you have a relationship with the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords that came as a baby for you. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us as we reflect. Um, Father, if we have put our hope in something else, I pray that you would change that. If we have felt like the only way to have peace on earth is for us to scurry about and fulfill it ourselves, set us free from that abuse. But Father, if our hearts have just been hungry for you and we do not know how to settle that debt, I pray that today every single hungry heart would walk away excited and filled because they have placed their faith in you. Remind us, those that have uh, faithfully chased after you, Father, remind us of the reason for this season. But for those who are here today who have gone from curious to hungry, I pray, Father, that they would walk away knowing you, that today they would place their faith in Christ and Christ alone for their salvation, that they would walk away full because they're satisfied in you. Help us to consider that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Christmas isn't just a time to decorate your house, to spend time with loved ones, and to open long-awaited presents. Christmas is a time to remember to remember that salvation doesn't come from within, it comes from above. To remember that infinitely better than the magic of Christmas is the miracle of Emmanuel. To remember that God was not and is not untouched by the pain and suffering of this world. To remember that Jesus isn't just part of the Christmas story, but Christmas is part of the Jesus story. To remember that there is no grace without a cross and no cross without a manger. To remember that Jesus doesn't just want us to remember what he did, but to join him in what he is doing. So this year, let the lights remind you of the light of the world who came into darkness for us. Let the gifts remind you of the greatest gift of all. And this year, make your heart like Bethlehem and receive the King.
you guys um, if you'd like some prayer we, we invite you forward here now for the rest of you we'll hopefully see you at the Elsinore if you're not able to be there Merry Christmas and we'll see you right after thanks you're dismissed
praise his name forever and we'll praise your name for 